five, four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. You're listening to Working Forward. Presented by Symmetra. In partnership with NASA Reimagine. In this limited podcast series, hosted by Harry Monty, Laura Dynan-Haber, Paul Tyler, and Todd Zen, we explore the future of work from a variety of viewpoints and discuss the challenges and opportunities ahead. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of our Working Forward podcast. I'm Harry Monty, head of the Benefits Division at Symmetra and one of your co-hosts. Um, for our loyal listeners, you know that we're well into this journey of discussing the future of work. Uh, we started with our first episode talking to a futurist named Gary Golden and talked about some of the macro trends happening around the future of work. Um, and since then, we have gained perspective from employers as well as uh, some views from employees about the future of work. And I think those conversations have been terrific. Today, we are going to shift direction toward a, a more specific topic, and that is uh, one that's on the forefront for both employers and employees, that being medical trends uh, and the delivery of healthcare. Obviously, the last couple of years uh, have been dominated by the pandemic. We all know that. Uh, we have all felt the the impacts of the pandemic and the way that that has changed the way that we work. Uh, so I think this is going to be a fascinating topic for us to dig into. Uh, medical trends, um, how healthcare is delivered, the expectations that people have in the future, and the implications of all that. So um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I want to introduce my co-hosts. So Paul Tyler and uh, Laura Dynan-Haber from Nassau Reimagine. Great to have you both back for episode four. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you. Hey, appreciate uh, all the partnership uh, from you in getting these podcasts going. So uh, thank you for that and looking forward to uh, your contributions to this particular episode. So you'll notice today that we're missing someone. Uh, unfortunately, Todd Zen had a conflict arise and was not able to join our podcast today, but he will be back for episode five. Uh, but with that, I do want to move on to our guests. So I'll introduce our, our first guest, Dr. Adrian Mayers. Uh, he's a Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Premira. So welcome, Adrian. Thank you. Good to be here. Adrian, could you just share a little bit uh, with the audience about your role there at Premira? Absolutely. So all things security when it comes to protecting information, protecting data, um, helping our privacy team execute on their mission. Those are things that fall within, within my role. So I work within the IT space. So thinking about technologies that we have and technologies that are coming. Great. Well, thank you, Adrian. I appreciate that. And good to have you with us today. We also have two additional guests from the Symmetra team. Uh, Sarah and Gina are registered nurses that support our medical stop loss product line here at Symmetra. Um, Sarah and Gina, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell a little bit about your roles. Uh, Gina, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, my name is Gina Benware. I am the auditor trainer for our medical risk consultant team on the stop loss side. Um, I have trained, we, our nurse team has actually grown exponentially over the last few years and we continue to grow um, and we help with risk management in our underwriting team. Great. And Sarah? 
Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm one of the medical risk consultants, so I support um, underwriting and claims uh, with that renewal and prospective process for uh, stop loss, and then also uh, doing constant, uh, almost like management of accounts during throughout the year to look for cost containment and uh, supporting the uh, underwriters and sales reps. Great. Thank you both. Excited to have you here. You know, we work with employers every day that uh, self-fund their employees' medical coverage and gain insight firsthand into the medical trends that they're most worried about. So I, you know, looking forward to your contribution to the conversation. So with that, I'm going to jump right into our first question. Um, I mentioned before the pandemic in my opening comments, and we all know it has driven a tremendous amount of change uh, in the way that we work. Um, one impact is the change to the environment in which we all work, right? So, so many more people are working remotely. Uh, they're working in different environments. We have, if, um, you know, different safety um, things that they need to worry about. And I'm curious to see: Are you seeing any medical trends emerging that are linked to the way that um, how and where people work uh, are creating compared to historical norms? Um, I can take, I can answer part of that. Um, so one of the things that we are seeing is actually some increase in some mental health issues. Um, a little bit of, it can actually go either way, but a little bit of social isolation and a little bit of anxiety around being alone all the time. Um, pe some people are feeling like they're losing that connection. So there's an increase in some anxiety issues, some mental health issues. But people who are more introverted are actually, they're, they're feeling some benefit to their mental health because they're able to be at home, to be comfortable, to be closer to their family and, and closer to comfort of home. So we kind of see it go both ways. And that's one of the trends that I've been noticing. So Sarah or Adrian, would you like to add anything to that? I think from, from my perspective, um, you know the, the work from home piece has been has, has been excellent because I, I I I take part in that, but from where I've been sitting, we've been thinking about things in a different way. Um, the idea of telehealth, and I think we'll you know we'll expand on that as we as we go forward here on this call. But there's just things that are that seem a little bit more accessible than they were before, a little bit more acceptable than they were before. Um, I think the avenues and the the conduits, if you will, what I like to call the on ramps for getting getting access to healthcare, there seem to be more on ramps available. Um, now, we'll we'll get into parts where where that has some concerns and there's some issues there, but I like the fact that we're we're teasing out some creativity and innovation, and we're not we're not shying away from it, but we do need to be cautious as we as we keep moving forward. So Adrian, actually, do you mind if I build on that a little bit? Because you mentioned new on-ramps for people to access medical care, um, but we've also all seen the articles and uh, seen studies about the impact of care avoidance during the pandemic. And so, you know, it, it's kind of this interesting dichotomy because people have new ways to access healthcare, but you also have some some care avoidance going on that I think is having some impact on people's overall health. And um, so, you know, for any of our guests, uh, uh, trends that you're seeing that are directly related to care avoidance uh, that we should be concerned about. I can speak to that a little bit. Uh, one thing I've noticed is just kind of anecdotally in looking at claims is 
advanced cancer diagnoses at onset. Somebody may seek care due to a secondary symptom, maybe respiratory or bone pain, and the diagnosis is is advanced at that point. I did do a little research to see, well, you know, is that truly a trend in the care avoidance? So, early pandemics so around the early 2020s like spring 2020 there was about 40% of claims that could be attributed to that or 40% of people that really avoided care later on deeper into the pandemic it was around 10% but i still feel like 10% is a large number of populations to to avoid care and and we're going to see the impact of that yeah so we we've, we've seen a lot of changes in behavior in terms of people going to the doctor, uh, I think Adrian, on the technology side, we've certainly seen much more transparency in what it costs uh, when we show up. Has has that changed behavior at at all, Sarah? Maybe you you've you'd be the first person to give us your perspective on that as well. Was that for? For me or age or, or Dr. Myers? Well, I thought, Sarah, said, you, you, you might start and then Adrian, will have, I'm sure, has uh, has an interesting uh, view on this. Yeah, well, I think in terms of cost transparency, I, I don't see a big impact on that, on the uh, general consumer, the, the public consumer, only because I, I think a couple of reasons. I think the difficulty in the transparency, uh, what are they actually looking at? You know, if they have healthcare coverage, are, are they really going to go to that hospital site, download the the JSON for you know the JSON file, <laughs> get the converter, and, and really read through those documents to find out? Oh, also they need to know their CPT code uh, for what they what they're having done or what they might have done. So I I don't see a heavy consumer transparency use. Um, maybe Dr. Myers has more input on that. Yeah, maybe a slip. Slightly different perspective. I think I think there's something to be said for transparency leading into other things that that a patient cares about. Uh, primarily, from my perspective, privacy. So the idea that there's a relationship that's being built here between the healthcare delivery organization and the patient, and that relationship is bidirectional. And giving patients more access through transparency and what it's going to cost reinforces that relationship, and then adds, we can add other things like the conversation around where's my data and how are you protecting it? Um, what data do you need? Do you understand, you know, what privacy things you're, you know, as a healthcare delivery organization, what are you held to? And then by extension, does the patient understand what, what privacy things they should be thinking about and asking about? So I think, I think the transparency conversation starts to drive a different relationship all up. I've actually seen some um, positive trends with um, the pharmacy side of things. Um, we've seen a lot where people who were receiving infusions throughout the pandemic actually, you know, were given options by their healthcare providers to receive oral medications so they could just easily go to the pharmacy, have something mailed to their house. And a lot of those medications are a lot lower cost because you're not having the outpatient care associated with it. So, and it's, it's, you know, they're both the same thing. It's just a different delivery method, right? You're getting it orally, you're, you're, you're taking an oral medication versus going to a hospital, getting exposed to all kinds, you know, not just 
possible COVID, but all kinds of other things. So it's actually providing a lot of people a little bit more security around feeling like they feel more secure getting their medications and taking those at home. And it's cost saver, not only for, you know, it, it's cost saver for us. So it's, it's a win-win for everybody. Stay on that security uh, theme, if you will. Adrian had mentioned some privacy concerns, and there's considerations for both the patient and I'm sure there's considerations on the provider side as well. What are some of the new? Are there new concerns that have come up with this telehealth, the technology that's out there? I know as we had the uh, the pre-conversation, Adrian, you had mentioned that you've been on the insure tech side. So as we implement new technologies into this mix, we open ourselves up to additional risk. I don't know if each of you want to want to take a moment to kind of talk to us about what are some of these new risks, or maybe they're not new, maybe they're just talked about now um, that are out there that people should be aware of, whether it's on the you know receiving end or on the providing end of things. I guess- Maybe, I'll, I'll, sure. maybe I'll lead us down. Um, <laughs> so many things I will totally take over this podcast talking about security risks, but I'll, I'll be brief. I think there's there's things to think about from the from the, the, the patient side, or you know, in, in my case, the member side. When we're thinking about telehealth, new applications, wearables, all of this data that's being collected. Um, and by extension, this data is supposed to be collected in order to deliver better healthcare, in order to drive deeper relationships between you know, the patient and the healthcare provider. I think those things are, are bringing up some different questions um, for, for patients around, is this, is this information necessary in order to provide me care? Am I getting value? Or are you collecting my data and you're selling it on the back end in some way, shape or form that I'm not aware of? Um, those, <laughs> those, are, those are questions that, that definitely pop up in, in this new realm, this new paradigm that we're in. Then you think about it from the healthcare delivery side or, or you know, the, the payer and plan side around who do we have to connect to? Who do we have to share data with bidirectionally in order to drive a, a larger ecosystem um, and thereby and then by extension be able to deliver better healthcare to our members and our and our patients. Are those trusted? Is there room for fraud? Is there room for for a threat actor to get within the, that that transaction in some way, shape, or form? Um, there's a lot more connections and nuances that have to be looked at in a, in a deep way to make sure that we're we're these things aren't being exploited. From you know, from the organization side or from the patient side. Well, Can and, and just uh, on that thread on the technology Sorry. front, anything new generally comes with a, a big price tag. Um, how does that sort of work into the you know equation of a, an employee-sponsored plan? Um, you know, is there more fraud? Is there a higher potential for fraud? How do you evaluate? You know, whether Paul gets this treatment or not uh, within the scope of the plan. It's well, it's it's a great question. I think one of the things to think about is how are we vetting that new technology? So is it the organization that's driving that or is it a societal change that that's, you know, kind of that supply and demand pull and push? Um, how do you where do you want to be? Do you want to be an early adopter or do we want to see how things settle in before we get on board? I think there's there's some nuances there, right? Because you think about the market, you think about market share, you think about the ability to differentiate your offering within the space. What does that mean? Does that mean that we have to be leading, or can we be a, can we be lagging a little bit as we think about that that risk mitigation um, that has to be in place 
Again, why are we here and why are we looking at this technology? We're solving human problems with that technology. And when technology is just there for the sake of technology, we have a problem. So maybe that's the time that you hit the brake pedal. But I think these are the conversations that we need to have internally and by extension with our patients through focus groups or what have you, when we're at our surveys, different ways to engage. How would you like to be engaged? What would you like to see us do? Does this seem too invasive? Does this make sense? Is this the right balance? What information would you need before you would adopt this new technology or service that we're offering? And then by extension, what is the exposure on the back end for the, for the organization? Um, there, there, there's a lot there, so no, no simple answer, but the key underlying piece here is about driving that conversation and being honest with what those results are and what those answers are. So Adrian, you, you started to take us down the path of um, you know, very personalized medicine, right? With this data and information, how do we provide a better healthcare experience for a patient? But that personalization comes in so many different flavors, right? You, um, you hear about just these amazing gene and cell therapies that are out there uh, that are incredibly expensive, but also amazing, amazing lifesavers. And um, and then you get into, is there a way to personalize care in a way that could help with chronic conditions and get ahead of high cost for both the consumer and the employer who might be providing uh, health care uh, to, to their employees? So there's a whole there's a whole place that we can go here with personalized service. So let me start with the gene and cell therapies. Um, you know, Gina, Sarah, I know you, you deal with these, and I'd love to get your thoughts on some of these specialized treatments that we're starting to see. I think it's such an exciting field. Um, you know, the opportunity for somebody to have a life-changing moment with one infusion, essentially, where they are freed from the tie of continually having to give themselves injections or infusions or um, a parent, you know, with, with a baby that if they can get a Zolgensma um, that's for spinal muscular atrophy. If they can get that infusion before the age of two, their child can go on to live, you know, essentially a normal, a normal life. So I, I think it's amazing. Um, the cost, unfortunately, due to what comes into those, uh, the manufacturing of them, the research and design behind them or development behind them, really does contribute um, to the cost. And also the cell therapy, those are life-saving cancer treatments that, again, you can take your own cells, they're formulated in a lab, and then you're freed from cancer or your loved one is freed from cancer. Um, so it's amazing, but they but they come with a high, a high price tag. I think the positive though to look at is, while it is a very high price tag, it's a one-time infusion. So you have to look at it from the perspective that while it is a very, very expensive infusion, you're now taking away the expensive med that they might take for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So while, you know, it's almost like a proactive approach, you're taking that med up front and now you don't have all those costs for the rest of their lifetime. So it almost sometimes could even balance out to be more positive taking that one, you know, from a financial perspective, taking that med one time, and then you don't have to deal with it again. Like the spinal muscular atrophy that Sarah's referring to, if that baby gets that med before the age of two, it stops that neurological disorder in its tracks. That's it. It's done. 
and they're healthy, happy babies, and they go on to live long lives, and they don't have a lot of complications. So while it does come with a high price tag, we're seeing that the, the positive side, it's, it's a proactive approach. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, pandemic certainly changed the way I, I get care. I'd never done a telemedicine call in my life. I'd heard companies pitch this. Uh, I've been to urgent care centers, but I certainly changed the way I looked at them. Paul, would you like to sit in an emergency room for four hours with everybody else coughing, or would you prefer to drive down the street <laughs> and sit there for 30 minutes? Um, how, how are some of these alternative um, uh, services or alternative methods of care going to permanently change how people get their health care? Um, and I'm not sure, I'm sure each one of you have uh, unique perspectives here. Uh, maybe start, uh, Adrian, with you. I think from my perspective, I, I don't think they're going away. I, I think there's a, there's an acceptance now, you know, within society that there are these these different, you know, modalities, if you will, that are accessible. And, and they make life easier. I mean, you're home, right? I, I did a COVID test a couple of weeks ago. So now my home is an extension of my healthcare ecosystem in, in a meaningful way. Um, I wear, you know, wearables, I have an aura ring. I'm, I'm getting, you know, great data about my sleep. So making some adjustments there, uh, shameless pitch for them because wow, it's pretty amazing. However, there's there's this underlying piece of, around health equity that's still out there, right? Is it, is it, does everybody have access? Does everybody have access to wearables? Does everybody have access to that healthcare even though the home is now an extension. I think there's still an underlying piece that needs to be addressed, but but things aren't going away. I think we're only going to get better, but we we do have to keep on asking those questions and be intentional about you know what those responses are. And Gina, from your perspective, what's good? What could? How could it be better going forward? So anecdotally, I'll say it's pretty much changed our lives. I have two small children, and when they're sick, the worst thing is thinking of dragging your kids out when they're not feeling well, bringing them out into public, getting other people sick, having, you know, you got to get them all dressed up, put on your mask, go out. So if my child has an ear infection or, you know, a cold and we have COVID tests at home, we can test them, we can talk to a provider, talk about what's going on, and we can get the care. From a nurse perspective, sometimes it gets a little scary because there's things when we see a patient, I was an emergency room nurse, um, when we see a patient, we do a full head-to-toe assessment, and that's really hard to do on a phone call. So while you are getting, you know, the proper care and they're asking the right questions, I don't want to knock the, you know, the, the healthcare providers that are doing telehealth, there are things that I worry about that could be missed. You're not able to listen to someone's lungs. You're not able to listen to their bowel sounds or their heart or just certain mannerisms that you might see. Because sometimes telehealth calls aren't just video, you know, they're telephone calls. And those little nuances that we are able to pick up on as clinicians, I feel could be missed. And, and sometimes those little things turn into really big things. Sarah. Yeah, I, I, I would piggyback on what Gina said, the, the concerns as a nurse, um, you're more reliant on what the patient or is willing to tell you is going on. And depending on who or what is in their background, are they going to feel comfortable sharing with their telehealth provider? I know 
there's things if my kids were listening from the different room in the other room, I'm going to hold back on what I might say on how I'm really feeling or how I'm really doing versus, you know, being in a private room with my children, you know, out in the waiting room waiting for me where they should be. <laughs> um, but I, I think it does make it easier and more accessible for more people. Um, but there's also a learning curve. I know my parents would never do telehealth. Um, they are very um, secure conscious with their with their data, with their information. And like Adrian said, how is this being shared? Who is it being shared? I know I've done a telehealth before where um, it looked like I was in the provider's living room and I didn't, I wasn't fully comfortable with that. Like, I'm like, who, like, who else is in that? Can you put the camera over that way? I want to see who else is in the room um, or who could be listening in. Um, so I, I worry about that. Or I've made phone calls where I'm making an appointment and I can hear kids in the background, which is like, oh, that's cute. They work from home like I do. But who, but are they, <laughs> you know, what's your name and date of birth? Uh, you know, who is, who is, who is listening to that? So I, I think we still need some transparency on on the data, on the security side, and where it's comfortable, it's it's also uncomfortable. <laughs> so I, I want to jump in here and bring a couple of things together, right? Because Sarah, you just mentioned generational differences in the way that um, people are willing to get healthcare, what they're comfortable with. We talked a little bit about um, cell and gene therapies, right? You think about all of the genetic mapping that happens today, and one generation may not think anything of doing that, and other generations are, are really just really uncomfortable with it. And it all comes back to, you know, Adrian, the point you raised before about um, what data are you making available to whom, and how do you feel about it? And so, yeah, I, I want to circle back to that topic for a moment, and specifically, um, you know, Adrian, generational differences and how uh, we all need to be cognizant of that and handle those situations as we look at just these amazing advancements that are that are happening around us. There, there is a difference. Um, there is a an expectation of privacy that that certain generations have, and others do not. Um, you know, when you think about, about Gen Z, Gen Y, and how easy it is to to live your life in your on your mobile, right? To live your life online, and and not really thinking about about data privacy or things that you're putting into that, you know, in, into that cyber universe. Whereas, you know, Gen X, you know, which I am, I'm a little skeptical. I'm I'm going to ask a question. Where's this going? What do you need that really? Uh, you know, who are you? You know, how long has the company been around? Where's the company based? Now, keep in mind, I've been in security for, for 25 years and, uh, you know, the paranoia is real and, um, and necessary. However, there, there are different things that we need to think about when it comes to, to generations. And when you're, you know, especially kind of in the, in the health payer and plan space, you have to think about who are your members and what are the services that are going to make sense to some and are, are not going to make any sense to others. So how do you meet your member where they're where they're at? And yet you need to make sure that you have enough offerings in order to kind of customize and curtail that to, to whatever member you're, you're dealing with. But it's it's about being empathetic and, 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 you know, compassionate about where they are and understanding that, hey, they don't feel well. And the last thing they want is another friction point or some additional anxiety based on them getting access to healthcare. So is the acceptance of 
say telehealth as our example, becomes more and more into the into the mainstream, understanding that it's not going to be for everybody. You know, how do you see this impacting the future state of how people will access and use benefits offered through their workplace? So maybe it's not just telehealth, it's additional benefits. And as we get used to this activity of calling a, a provider and receiving care or receiving guidance through a computer or through a phone, do you think, you know, I'll let each of you take a chance to answer this question, but do you think we're going to see more of that? And will people use additional benefits that maybe they wouldn't have given, you know, the situation had been different? Sarah, I see you nodding. Do you want to start? That's my thinking nod. I, I think yes. I think there there will be more accessibility, um, but it also puts ownership on the user. You know, we have patients that have difficulties seeking care now based on whatever's going on in their background. I, I did home care nursing, and and I would see this all the time where not a patient would not take responsibility for their health care. So if it could make it easier for that person, like if they're of the generation where they can easily pick up a tablet or, you know, hop on their computer, I, I think that I do see it being utilized more. Um, but for people that already have roadblocks or have difficulties advocating for themselves, I think it would be no change for maybe that group. I agree with Sarah. Um, I think certain, you know, for example, a lot of people with diabetes will let that go or will not monitor their diabetes. So I actually think, you know, from a telehealth perspective, it might be easier to get in touch with those people to, to make them more accountable, maybe set up regular meetings where they wouldn't want to go in and have to see their doc. If they're already not taking care of themselves, they're not going to want to go into an office, have to weigh themselves, have to, you know, kind of answer to their doctor. So maybe developing a rapport with somebody over the phone might be a little bit more comfortable for them. So it might open that up a little bit more. So hopefully that will happen because we would get people that would come into the ER and their acuity is so high and they're so far gone with what's going on with them, looking at us to fix them right away. So hopefully, you know, with, with more and more technology coming to the forefront, people will be more willing to be a little bit more proactive about their health. Laura, you said something interesting. You said you, you use the word benefits, right? And benefits connote value. Now, the, the underlying thing there, which is interesting when you think about the, the employer-employee relationship, is that if there are these benefits, um, and for the folks you know on the podcast, I can't see that I just use their quotes. If if these are new benefits and and a new value being brought to the employee, there has to be this underlying trust that these are the right things. And if, if an employee trusts the employer, there may be less friction, less hesitation to try some of these things because there, there should be this underlying piece like, hey, you're not going to bring anything in here to harm me. This is a benefit, part of my benefits package. Let me give it a shot. But one of the things that I think we need to do is we, we, we need to make sure that we're kind of leaning in there a little bit more and allowing people to experience something that they're, they're not used to, explaining to them, what is this? Why, why is it beneficial? What is the value? How is it going to make your life easier? Um, we tend to get right into it like, oh, well, you should be using this. Okay. Uh, I've got about 20 questions as to, as to you know, what this thing is that you haven't even answered yet. So let's just be a little bit more human on the front end before we try to, you know, just have people embrace technology because it's cool and it's new and it's awesome. 
And it is. I don't, don't get me wrong. But let, let's be human on the front end and make sure that everybody's kind of moving at, at that pace that they need to move at. Do you mean, Adrian, like a almost like an incentive-based usage if if that benefit were to perhaps lower the organization's overall healthcare risk or um, individual's risk if they were to utilize a telehealth program, so to speak, or um, do you think, I don't know if my question is making sense, but like, a, like an incentive base. I know in the past I had healthcare where if we went to a certain location, we received a financial incentive for going to that location um, because it was extremely less more less costly than going to a hospital for that same care. You're, you're bringing up a good point. This goes back to transparency, but it's a different kind of transparency. It's about the employer being transparent with the employee and saying, hey, I want you to go here because if we aggregate these costs through this provider, it lo- it honestly, yes, it lowers our costs for the company, and by extension, we can do different things with our employee base or, or use that money in different ways. But we, we, we tend not to have those conversations. We just assume that, well, you should go because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to, you know, be here for your best interest and just, just do that. And I think we need to be a little bit more transparent about, well, why do you want me to go to that provider? What's the benefit to the company? I know you're telling me that there's benefit to me. Got it. What's the benefit to you? company, organization, entity, um, those conversations aren't happening as much as they should. So speaking of uh, building trust between employers and their employees, um, you know, Gina, you mentioned before, as we we opened this up with talking about trends that we're seeing in in the medical field, and you, you brought up mental health. And obviously, it is something that just a, a tremendous number of folks are are struggling with. Um, certainly, you know, not just in the last couple of years of the pandemic, more broadly. And so, I'm curious for everyone's thoughts about how employers can lean into um, and and best help their employees with mental health and their overall wellness as we move forward, as they think about their benefit programs, um, the types of services that they make available, uh, or even cultural aspects. I'd love to get your, your take on all that. So, you know, Gina, I'll start with you. So definitely um, EAP programs, making people aware of them, because a lot of people will come, you know, you'll come into a company and, you, and you'll hear about it, you know, like during your orientation, you hear, okay, EAP, what is that? But making sure that management is, is educated on the EAP programs and making them, you know, or making them accountable for helping their employees help if, if something seems to be off with an employee, making them aware of the EAP program. You don't need to tell me what's going on, but I just want to let you know, these are the things that we have available to you. And I think um, Symmetra does a great job at that. I think, you know, we have our own internal, we, we call it SwiftNet. It's our own internal internet that we can all look at. And you're always seeing that we have groups that people can join to feel more connected if they have you know, we have a, a group for people with disabilities. We have a group for um, people who have been in the military and might have PTSD. We have all kinds of groups that people can join. But I think there's something to be said for the education behind that. And I think that's really dependent on management, supervisors really being educated on that and then letting their employees know about that. So it's kind of like a little bit of a, a, a chain effect. So it comes down from the top and then everybody's letting everyone know that these are the things available to you. Because if you don't know what's available, you can't really access it. 
Great, thanks. Adrian, thoughts on that topic? Quite a few on, on, on this one. Um, I'll, I'll start specifically with you know, kind of my colleagues in the cybersecurity space and the things that we've been seeing over the last couple of years um, with COVID. Just an uptick in, in, in threats and attacks, um, you know, significant things. There's obviously a cyber war going on right now, Russia and the Ukraine, there's a spillover in, in the cyber domain. And, and what kind of stresses does that drive for not only, you know, CISOs, chief information security officers like myself, but all of those cyber defenders out there that are constantly trying to defend and a threat actor only have to getting it, get it right once. There, there's a lot of pressure. And, and we, we don't talk about it within our community enough about, wow, this is, this is really painful. Um, I have a tremendous amount of stress to try to protect this organization. What if something bad happens? Just having those conversations saying, are you feeling this? What are you doing to, to, you know, to ease and to talk about those, those mental stresses um, in a safe place? So one thing that you said, Harry, around culture is interesting. So at Premier Blue Cross, mental health is, is, is a huge focus right now, not only for our member community, but internally. And a cultural piece there requires, from what I'm seeing and, and from what I've seen, is senior managers being vulnerable, talking about this and actually changing the culture. We would not be talking about this 30 years ago, but today, this is what's required. To be able to be vulnerable, to talk about the stresses and the struggles that we have, and to be human. So where you can see a vice president have a conversation like this and go, wow, he just talked about that. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that too. Well, I guess, I guess it's okay to talk about. That's where we need to be, um, honestly, as a society. So we're, I'm seeing it at, at Primera. I'm seeing it in other places. And I, I love that we're, we're driving the conversation and the narrative because we need to talk about it more. Completely agree. Yeah, Thank it, you, Adrian. Oh, go ahead, Paul. No, well, well, both, you know, Sarah, you and Adrian have, have talked about the privacy concerns with this technology. Who's listening? Where are they in the room? Um, as the technology gets better, you know, the you mentioned the ring. I've got the watch. I'm sure they'll have, I don't know what they'll have next, you know, the next strap. <laughs> I call her to put on me, you know, to track my, my health. Will I simply start to, to worry less about privacy, just sort of, love the benefits. And I, I use the TikTok uh, app as an example, great example. I have friends who use TikTok. I use TikTok. I say to them, do you realize everybody says this, all the government officials say this is their spying us. And they say, Paul, I don't care. You know, will your ring, Adrian, be so good? You don't care where the information is going. It's just great. I mean, what, what's, what's your perspective uh, on, uh, you know, future so I guess just, concerns? Just real. Future concerns. I guess just real quick on that. It it truly is about concerns and risks versus the benefit. Um, if the benefits are so vast, you're going to take some risk. Your risk appetite is going to be adjusted because you're getting so many benefits from it. I mean, honestly, again, with this ring that I have, I'm able to adjust my sleep. I'm able to understand if I, you know, how I'm breathing. You know, what is my blood oxygen? At? I mean, seriously, all of these things are allowing me to to make some adjustments and sleep a lot better. So when it came to privacy and I, I did my research on 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 Aura and I was like, oh, OK, I'm I'm OK with these things because I'm getting these benefits. I will still keep an eye on it. But this this is actually making sense to me. And people will start to do that calculus in their head 
to try to figure out if the concern and the risk is, is worth the benefit or not and, and make some adjustments. But the one thing I would add is that there's bigger conversations that are happening specifically on Capitol Hill around healthcare, around cybersecurity in healthcare. There are senators and, and representatives that are talking about this in a meaningful way. Why? Because the their constituencies are talking about this. Hey, how are we protecting this privacy, um, these privacy issues? How are we protecting data? How are we talking about this in a meaningful way? So when you start to see this cohesion in the ecosystem around these things, then the manufacturers will get better and more transparent and put the right controls in place to make sure that they're protecting it. We can all benefit from this. It's it's This isn't rocket science, but there has to be a willingness to make those changes. And I think too, when you speak to the transparency aspect, I think that's huge of transparency on the benefit, transparency on where, where the data is going, how it's going to be used. Um, if I can add my two cents in for that. Thanks. No, it, it begs to ask the question, and, and Harry, I know that you love this topic, so I, I apologize for bringing it up and not letting you do so, but I have to ask the question. So along the same lines of transparency, understanding, data, security, who else is in the room? Let's fast forward a little bit, and I'm going to ask the question, is, is the metaverse the provider office of the future? Like, do we, right? So could we be receiving care in a place that doesn't quite exist? And maybe it's Paul's collar, Adrian's ring, or maybe Sarah's watch, where they get enough stats off of the physical Laura to be able to potentially treat the digital or virtual Laura in a space that we've created in the metaverse. Like, is that pie in the sky? Is that maybe 10% true, 90% we'll see? What do you What do you all think? I guess to, to, to dream big dreams, is that something we even want? Like, do we even want this to become a potential reality? I know it's a lot to chew on, but uh, Gina, what do you think? I think, like I said before, it makes me a little bit nervous <laughs> as a nurse um, because, again, I just, there's something to be said for seeing someone one-on-one, reading their mood, reading their mental health, um, picking up on cues that, you know, we spent years in school trying to learn about. And I just don't know, you know, from a clinical perspective, how much you can gain. While it's a lot of information, I still think that that element of being in person and, and trying to pick up on those things could be missed. So it is something that I would be a little bit hesitant about um, while I think there's a huge value in especially, you know, think about communities in West Virginia, in the mountains that can't get to a provider. You know, they've got a two hour commute. Um, Maybe they're able to get to a library in town that has Internet and they can they can speak to somebody and maybe they wouldn't have before. Maybe that will be helpful to them. But I still get a little bit nervous thinking about everything done, you know, in a in a metaverse type um, scenario only because I, I do feel, you know, seeing people face to face, there are just things that you could miss. I am not a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I had a different perspective on this question. I, I thought there's, there's circumstances where it really could be amazing because 
for those people that have a lot of health roadblocks, you're in their world and you're meeting them in their world with their challenges. So, you know, thinking about um, addiction treatment, um, you're with them with their triggers. You're, you're, you're in their home, um, in their meta home, I guess, whatever, whatever part of the metaverse they, they make part of their, their profile. (laughs) Um, but I, I thought it would be amazing for circumstances like that, where there's, where you need to be in that person's home with their triggers to see how you can assist them. You know, I, I would think it could be, and seriously, very valuable for things like basic first aid training, where you physically have to learn how to do something, how to use a one of those defibrillator. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you may disagree. I mean, I'd be interested, you know, please disagree Pack with me. How to, how to pl- how to, <laughs> yeah, how to- I actually got my, um, so, you know, as nurses, we have, you know, certain trainings that we do and we keep up on. So BLS, ALS, uh, basic life support, advanced life support. I actually went to a building, got buzzed in and there was a screen and a dummy and there was a person having me renew my training in front of him. And he was able to see all of the stats of how deep my compressions were, how good I was at, you know, inflating the lungs. I mean, he saw all of it in front of him and on his screen and it was able to read the pulse, everything. And it was great, you know, like instead of having to go to a class and you sit through the class and you have to, I was able to just schedule my 45 minute thing and I was done. And I didn't feel like I lost anything by doing that. And he was able to see me, in person, you know, he was able to, to see my face and what I was doing. And that was amazing. So that was something that was really, really positive. And I think, you know, thinking about something like the nursing shortage right now, during COVID, and even now, some people are a little bit hesitant to be, you know, out in the field, people w- were able to do a lot of simulation through the internet, through, you know, calling in and, and going into simulation labs by themselves. So I think there's a lot of potential there to help with our nursing shortage, um, you know, that's one thing that's on my mind is the huge nursing shortage that we have. And I think that's changing a lot of things because we had to do all so, of it in person. So one, one question, Gina, did the, the robot survive? The robot survived. Yes. Yes. Good. <laughs> well, Laura, Laura knows me well and, and knows that one of my favorite topics is the metaverse. And, um, uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't let this episode end you know, without circling back to Adrian as a, as a chief information security officer, would love your take on the metaverse. So many things. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think Laura's question was, was spot on. And how is the metaverse going to manifest itself going forward? I think it's only a matter of time. I think when we think about better optics, um, artificial intelligence advances there, um, virtual reality and augmented reality are going to be part of our lives. You know, as Gina was saying, we're solving a human problem with that technology. That's what it's there for. So when we think, and and the big piece for me is about, you know, underserved communities, Latin America, Africa, Asia, the ability to leverage the metaverse. Um, as we start getting technology where you could put on a suit and yes, it'd be great if you were physically here, but I will be able to get so many, so much telemetry off of this suit that you're wearing. You're it, I'm not able to be there, but this is the next best thing. I may miss some things, but if I can capture 75% or 85% of what I would get from an on-site in-person visit, 
I'll take it. Because otherwise, the alternative very well could be that that person would never see anyone. So when we think about the metaverse, you know, kind of leveling the playing field, that's where I see some really interesting things about to happen. Now, it may take some time. Again, people have to trust it. The tech, there's other technologies that have to catch up. But what a great domain to start playing with, right? Let's be creative. Let's be innovative. But also thinking about the ethics that are inherent within, you know, those, those kind of use cases. Quite important. Well, there's no doubt that there is a lot of uh, change that has already happened, a lot of change that is coming our way on this front, and a really great conversation. So I want to say thank you to everyone. Um, thank you to my co-hosts uh, for joining me again. Uh, thank you to our guests, Adrian, Gina, Sarah. Great job on this discussion. Really appreciate it. And most importantly, thank you to our audience, uh, those that are listening to us and uh, hopefully enjoying every one of these episodes. So I remind you that there is more to come. Uh, we have future episodes as we continue to talk about the future of work. So thank you for joining us again and looking forward to you listening in the future. Thanks. Thanks. You're listening to Working Forward, Future of Work podcast series. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Symmetra Life Insurance Company or its affiliates. The host is not affiliated with Symmetra Life Insurance Company and or any of its affiliates and is solely responsible for the content.